Hey, it's Luke. I wanted to start today by acknowledging that we're recording this on the unceded land of the Spokane tribe and along a river system that has been a gathering place and a place of trade for indigenous people from around the Northwest, the Northern Mountain States, and the Plains for thousands of years. Our guest today is Jenny Slegel, an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and a descendant of the Northern Arapaho tribe, a Plains people who historically lived in what is today called Colorado and Wyoming. Jenny is Director of Tribal Partnerships for Upstream Washington, a nonprofit organization that helps health centers across our state and the nation eliminate barriers that prevent women from obtaining a full range of medical services. As you'll hear later, this is a particularly vital thing in Native communities. Jenny is also a Spokane Public School Board member. We're going to talk today about the justice movement surrounding missing and murdered Indigenous women, which is often expanded to include missing and murdered Indigenous girls, two-spirit people, and trans people. You'll hear Jenny in the interview talk about how frequently Native men disappear and die too, so this is an epidemic community-wide, and it's an epidemic that has been largely ignored until recently. And though MMIWG2S is a relatively recent movement, the violence and neglect perpetrated against Native folks isn't. Its roots reach back to the first white settlement of the Americas, and certainly back to the settlement of the West, the Northwest, and our region specifically. And it has persisted through the cultural genocide of religious boarding schools, the horse slaughter at Post Falls, the forcible removal of people from their ancestral lands across our continent, and of course, the reservation system itself. It would be a mistake, though, to think of any of this as even close to ancient history. Poverty, health, and wealth disparities are still overwhelmingly concentrated and exacerbated on the reservations that still exist today. I want to just point out a couple national stats and make one really harrowing illustration from our local region, and then we'll get to the interview. According to research that was updated in 2018 by the National Congress of American Indians, over 80% of Native women have experienced violence. Nearly 60% have experienced sexual violence. And incredibly, almost unbelievably, 96% of those sexual assaults came at the hands of a non-Native perpetrator. Native women are five times more likely to experience interracial physical domestic violence than white women, and they are 2.5 times more likely to lack access to services following any of this violence. So not only is violence a greater threat to them, they have less recourse to even get help, much less justice. Now let's talk locally. As of April 1st, Washington State Patrol had documented there are 103 missing Native American people in our state. That's people who are missing right now, this second. According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, NAMUS, I think that's how you pronounce it, statewide there are 749 missing persons total in all of Washington. That means that while Native American people make up about 2% of the state population, they represent almost 14% of those that are missing. But let's go a little further. Among missing natives, more than 50% of those, 52 people, are missing from eastern Washington. And 29 of those cases, so almost 60% of the cases in eastern Washington and 30% of cases in all of Washington, come from a single tribal jurisdiction. Let's think about what this means. There are 7.6 million people in Washington state. And not only do 30% of the missing indigenous people come from a community of barely 30,000, 4% of all missing Persons are currently from a jurisdiction that represents less than one half of 1% of the people of Washington. That jurisdiction is Yakima Nation, Jenny Slagle's community. 
If you are a member of that community, you are eight times more likely to go missing than anywhere else in the state. And so when you hear Jenny talk about why the MMIW movement is relatively new and how she herself had a hard time wrapping her arms around the contours of the problem, even as two of her own sisters went missing, think about what it would be like to grow up in a place where violence and sexual assault is the overwhelming norm and dehumanization, displacement, and even attempted genocide lives in your collective memory, the memory of your mother, of your grandmother, of your great-grandmother, maybe your great-great-grandmother, stretching back generations. In that context, would it really feel like a crisis? Would it feel like everyday life? For that reason, and the fact that our larger society hasn't even cared enough to track these statistics adequately the way we do for other groups, the Native American Coalition has said, quote, Missing and murdered indigenous women have disappeared not once, but three times, in life, in the media, and in data. There aren't words for the systemic, systematic, and everyday cruelty and horror of this crisis, but you'll hear our guest Jenny Slagle talk about how it's going to take all of us to even have a hope of ending it. That's coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 34, Missing But Not Forgotten. Jenny Slagle, thank you so much for coming on Range. Yes, thank you. Uh, can I give my formal introduction Please of do. myself? Hello, my name is Jenny Rose Slagle. I'm a member of the Yakima Nation. Uh, my grandparents were Sam and Mary Billy of the Kamilpa Band of the Yakima Nation and Richard and Anna Brown of the Wind River Reservation. My parents are Violet Brown and Jason Billy. I grew up on the Yakima Reservation and in the Rock Creek Longhouse. Uh, Rock Creek is in Rock Creek Canyon, just off the Columbia River Gorge, 20 miles east, uh, southeast of Goldendale. Rock Creek Hahopum Village is the earliest documented Yakima contact found in the Lewis and Clark journals. Wow. Yeah. So in the, in the long history of contact among the, the various bands of the Yakima people, your, mm-hmm. your people were the first to make contact yes. with, with yeah. white we're white from folks. the Columbia Gorge. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So. Golden, I'm, Goldendale's where the car, the Stonehenge is, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Just want to make sure I had my geography right. This is going to be a heavy topic today. So maybe we could just start easy and kind of talk about the MMIW it was unclear to me, and so maybe this is a part we potentially cut because I'm going to be learning throughout this thing, or, or we just roll with it. Like, is there consensus about MMIW versus MMIWG versus MMIWG2S, or how do the organizers of what's happening in Spokane think about that, and, and what are those conversations that you've had? I think it's a learning experience for many of us okay. as we uh, want to be as respectful. I definitely, I want to be as respectful as I can to knowing that this isn't an issue that just affects women. It's yeah. also men go uh, missing. I, right. I have a former classmate that, that went missing in Montana. Wow. So I know that it is uh, something that affects. And, you know, we uh, also have to include our, our trans and LGBTQ community. So it's, you know, very important 
just for brevity and <laughs> yeah. ease, I will often say MMIW. Okay. Um, but I, I definitely, if if someone were to refer to it as MMIWG or um, plus, I I would I would roll with however they would. Cool. find most respectful. So the organizing and the organizing being done specifically in Spokane is as inclusive as possible. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Cool. So maybe we could just start then with an, an overview of the movement and, and what it seeks to do broadly and maybe what y'all are working on in Spokane. Gosh, I don't even know where to start for as far as the movement. Um, yeah. The first time that even after my sister was murdered, I, I really hadn't heard of the MMIW issue. Right. Uh, I knew that women on the Yakima reservation were going missing. Uh, they, they were being found murdered. Um, we have quite a, quite a bit of land on the Yakima reservation. Uh, and a lot of it is rural and some of it is in the closed area where only Yakima tribal members can get to. Okay. So, you know, I, I have friends, family that, uh, have gone missing or found murdered and, I just, I didn't put it together. Um, yeah. Even, you know, in 2011, when my sister was murdered, they were doing some early legislation. I think uh, Senator Cantwell's office mm. reached out to my family. And at the time, you know, we were still processing. Uh, didn't really feel like I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I lived here in Spokane, obviously. Um and so we declined the offer to be a part of, uh, to speak on behalf of the legislature that, that she was trying to move forward. Um, and I, I definitely, I now regret that, uh, knowing that, you know, we could be, we could be a little bit further right. along with making sure that people were aware of it and the legislation. I really am disheartened that it took this long for, for it in 2019 to finally be passed. Yeah. to to have any uh, actions taken. So. Was that a state legislative action or was that a federal action? It was a, a state. So uh, in 20, now I just want to make sure I get my timeline right. In 2019, they were working towards a state legislation action uh, that finally was passed last year. I wanted to zoom out a little bit as well because there's like disproportionalities and just society-wide sort of like grief and trauma that goes along with this. And it strikes me that, you know, if that's what your community has dealt with for probably generations, you, there's right. an expectation of early death, you know, from, from everything ranging from increased rates of heart disease to just murder mm -hmm. and, and extreme poverty on in most reservations. I don't, I'm not specifically super familiar with the Yakima reservation, but it's sometimes hard to see the forest for the trees when you're, you know, when the forest is all you know. And so it's, it's, both tragic that it sounds like it was kind of a normal thing and, right. and has required work and time in the last say decade to really sort of I'm guessing even among your own you know family and then the, the larger tribe to be like oh this no this is not only wrong and brutal and sad but it's like unjust and we need to, to fight against it. Epigenetics tells us that trauma is in our DNA yeah uh, but I also believe that healing and resilience is in our DNA also. So it definitely has been difficult to talk about. My sister was murdered in 2011. Wow. And it took me until 2018 to finally start talking about it publicly. Wow. So I want to I get into that story a little bit later. But this is all sort of comes in this larger sort of societal context that you sent over a presentation that you shared with me sort of 
highlights the two worlds that we live in, specifically in Spokane County now. So let's shift to Spokane. Mm-hmm. There's you know fifteen thousand native people living roughly in in the city or in the county. In the county. In the county. Okay. The graduation rate is fifty two point two percent as opposed to 81% for white kids. Life expectancy is 72 years compared with the white population, which is 78.9. Native folks are healthcare uninsured at almost twice the rate of the larger Spokane population, so all folks. 8.8% of natives are uninsured and 4.9% of the general population is uninsured. Is that correct? Right. So the poverty rate is 2.4 times the greater Spokane population. So that includes historically mar- other historically marginalized populations mm-hmm. as well. Native youth are 1.5 times more likely than their white peers to be incarcerated and then referred to the adult criminal system, right? right. So not just not just sent to juvie, but then tried as adults. Mm-hmm. This is just two pages of a presentation that I literally just copied and pasted because I was like, this is awful. And like, I didn't know a single one of these stats from memory, right? Like there are, there are um, stats that I know from like the Latino population and from black folks specifically. I didn't know any of these exact statistics. So we're going to get into this more later, but like, it seems like it's even people that do their best being generous to myself here for a second to like know this stuff. I didn't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. So what is that? What is that? Maybe talk about the impacts of what these statistics mean for the community, but then what does it mean that people don't know the statistics? Those statistics are because, as you know, uh, colonization, genocide, uh, genocide that is go- still ongoing uh, within Native communities. You know, you talk about the Inlander op-ed that I wrote talking about, you know, cult- cancer culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been being canceled since, you know, white settlers came to America. So, you know, that historical trauma has just embedded itself into our communities. When you lose your culture and any ties to your family that way, something happens in your in your genes, in your DNA, that it, it definitely carries down into uh, future generations. So. Um, you know, we're more more likely to be affected by different types of abuse, uh, violence, drug, alcohol abuse. The, another brutal statistic is that suicide is the second leading cause of death for Native youth, specifically Native youth, and violence is the first. Mm-hmm. So the number one cause of death is essentially murder or manslaughter or... Right. If you look at, uh, you know, the report about Spokane Police Department and the arrests uh, being disproportionate for Black and Indigenous communities, I think that definitely ties into all of this, you know, violence, not only um, out in the community, but against Native Indigenous people. So, I mean, that all could be an, an episode unto itself. And maybe, right. we, maybe we should have started there, I guess. But <laughs> so on top of all of that, so how do you characterize when indigenous women and, and girls and two-spirit folks go missing? Like, is it generally a product of domestic violence? Is it is it all a bunch of different things? Like, how does that sort of tend to, to manifest? Well, in my two sisters' cases, actually. So my sister, Felicia, um, in 2011, and my sister, Angela, in 2013, they were both victims of domestic violence, so intimate partner, uh, which is uh, very common when you're talking about any type of violence against women. It's it's usually someone that they know, someone that they're close to. And and we know that domestic violence is underreported across the spectrum. Yes, uh, which makes justice difficult or impossible, 
you know, when it doesn't get reported, there are very important and meaningful and valid reasons why women don't report because they're not listened to. And this is true of gay people in the LGBT community as well. So if, you know, if you don't feel like you're going to be heard, uh, why would you go through the re-traumatizing, you know, aspect of reporting your, right. your crime? Or they just don't have the tools to be able yeah. to report it or to leave the situation. Right. And, and statistically, it's a lot worse for people of color in general. In what ways is the plight of Native women similar to those groups? And in, and what are the, like, the unique challenges that you feel like Native folks face when trying to fight for justice? I think uh, one of the unique challenges of Native women, uh, whether they're urban or on reservations, which have different situations definitely, but I think generally a lack of resources, mm. a lack of resources that when they are trying to leave the situation, that they don't know where to go, who to call, um, especially those resources where they are more culturally appropriate gotcha. for them okay. um, to know about Native communities specifically. Is there just like a, a quick, like an easy example of like what something that, you know, white people might not think twice about that would be sort of culturally inappropriate for uh, Native folks? Just just to sort of like paint a picture for folks. A situation that... Well, you were saying that like sort of getting help in ways that are culturally appropriate. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Definitely mental health, behavioral health services. You know, there's limited resources, especially that are provided by Native tribes or organizations mm. and if they are available they're not very easy to get in because they're you know they're so uh overworked right just knowing family that have been houseless homeless uh they tend to not go to shelters because they would rather go to family than oh, right. than than a shelter and if you don't have family around then that definitely complicates things a lot more yeah that makes sense so Maybe we could now talk about Felicia's story a little bit. Speaking of family, like what was the impact that her death had on your family? What were the stages that you went through? Uh, I think the, you know, the usual stages of grief is um, just the shock. When she was murdered, she was murdered in Yakima, Washington, which is in central Washington, yeah. um, very close to the Yakima Reservation, obviously. She was murdered by her boyfriend, and just a week earlier, my my mother had a conversation with her, with Felicia, too, uh, thinking that, you know, she was making plans to get away from him and out of Yakima. She actually wanted to come to Spokane to, to live with us. And at the time I had two of her girls that I was taking care of. Um, so, you know, we had them for a few years and, you know, she had a lot of uh, personal issues she was dealing with. She yeah. was, you know, dealing with uh, drug and alcohol issues, her on again, off again relationship. And it was, uh, it was just very shocking that it, actually could happen to someone that we love, uh, our family, my sister, who I grew up with, uh, along with, you know, two other siblings. We, we didn't talk about it because a lot of times, uh, native families don't talk about trauma. Um, just as, you know, um, my mom didn't talk for a long time about the trauma that she experienced from her, uh, schooling. So was that a religious schooling or? Yes. She went to a Catholic, uh, pretty much a day boarding school. 
I mean, I guess we should say going back to that thing where it's like what's culturally appropriate, like a lot of the services are run by religious groups mm -hmm. around here, specifically by Catholic groups yes. and Native people for very good reason don't trust right. Catholic There's people. There's trauma in yeah. that itself. Right. And so it's like you, if you've been traumatized by the system of the church, the specific church, you know, it, it takes it almost, I would, I would guess if I'm trying to put myself in that position, which I, I don't even think I could really understand what that would feel like. But if I, I would like, I would not trust the people that have, you know, committed literal and, and cultural genocide on mm -hmm. my people for the better part of 200 years. I just right. wouldn't be able to do it. Right. And so it's like, maybe that's what I was just trying to get at with that previous question. It's like having already experienced probably some of the worst trauma you could imagine, we then ask populations to re-traumatize them. But basically be like, oh, well, why don't you trust us? These people right. you've never been able to trust before, right? And it's hard. It's it's definitely hard enough, you know, to even trust telling your story. Right. So then can you talk about how, like, your grief was compounded by the, the criminal legal system and it's either its actions or its inaction? I felt like there wasn't any immediate action. Uh, yes, he was arrested very quickly, uh, from what I remember. But the conversations that we had with the with the police department back then were it felt very dismissive um, because of her situation uh, with being, you know, having addictions. Yeah, I didn't feel that they. It just felt very dismissive, and like we weren't being taken seriously, uh, providing as much information that we could or that we knew about her situation. He ended up uh, being in jail and the, that spring. So this happened August 2011. And uh, that's the spring of 2012. Our family was notified that he had asked to be released. Um, and I forget the exact terminology of a compassionate release right. uh, because he had cancer. And so we were allowed to go and give a statement um, because he was not going to make it to trial. Right. Uh, so we they allowed us to give our, our family uh, impact statements then. Right. And it just wasn't, it didn't feel like enough. It didn't feel like closure at all. It felt very unfair that he was being allowed a compassionate release, a compassionate death when she was not. So at what point did the family or maybe just you, because I don't know exactly the dynamics, feel free to expound on that. Like at what point did you sort of say like, no, this, we need to speak up now. Like my sister's death was part of a, was part of a pattern that needs to be sort of highlighted. And was that a family decision or is it something you've sort of decided to do alone? It unfortunately took another death of, um, so I have a very extended family. I have my siblings that I grew up with, and there were four of us. My dad had other children before my parents got together, and my sister Angela, who lived in Pendleton for all of her life, uh, went missing in 2013 on the Umatilla Reservation. Um, we looked for her, for the, the family looked for her for almost a week, and when she was found, she was found behind her ex-boyfriend's property, uh, pretty much in a ditch. And that sort of spurred, well, obviously there was more grieving. To yeah, so, you know, it compounded um, my anger. Uh, it compounded all the different uh, feelings of grief stages that, you know, I had already been experiencing. And the, the more information that I 
started learning about how big the actual issue was, I felt like I just, I couldn't just keep standing by. You know, I, 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 I couldn't not answer the call from whether it was legislators or uh, other families that wanted to talk about it. I just, I felt responsible. Yeah. Did she receive any sort of justice in your mind? No. No. Uh, it is, it's still, they classified her death as an accidental drowning. Wow. Because they assume she like overdosed and fell in a creek or something? Yeah. She, um, her death was because she drowned. She was uh, found face down in a, in a creek. That's so, so awful. So sorry to hear that. Thank you. So you had a quote in the presentation you sent me from Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who's a a Tulalip tribal member saying invisibility is the modern form of racism you know, you've, you've worked, you currently work kind of in, in public health. You're, you work in our schools. You're the sister of two murdered women. Can you explain how that invisibility has impacted you? I just so appreciate uh, Dr. Stephanie Freiberg and her work that she's doing. She's done uh, a study uh, actually about the not only uh, native voice needing to be brought forward, but also one of the studies that uh, she did um, in partnership with a uni- university, I, and I forget which one, but I talked about the impacts of mascots, oh, yeah. uh, native mascots uh, and symbols on native kids. So her work is, uh, I just fangirl about, about her, and <laughs> I love uh, that quote. I try to bring that quote up as much as I can um, across many forms of, of my work, whether it's in health or education. Invisibility is the modern day form of racism. People, they don't really know history after 1900. You know, all of the history around uh, na- who Native American people are is so romanticized of, you know, us being either... <laughs> Uh, savages as people were uh, coming to settle here in America or we're all chiefs and we we all live in teepees and there's just a lot of misconceptions about who native people were and then not not only that but now carrying it into the modern time when when you talk to a person about or ask a white person or non-native person who they think modern day Native Americans are, they'll talk about pre-1900 history and not anything about, you know, the struggles of almost being terminated, the uh, assimilation, um, which includes boarding schools and all of the history that is going on, you know, uh, right now, current modern day issues. This is slightly tangential, but, you know, I think about how like Gonzaga University, which is the school I went to, has a pioneering center for hate studies that actually has been kind of like one of a couple, a handful of places in America that sort of has been doing pioneering this work. And then we just learned a couple of years ago that the Jesuits on campus were housing priests who had done horrific things to native populations that that's boarding schools all across the northwest and up into alaska you know i'm not an expert on this stuff and i'm not an expert on the way that you know gonzaga's institutional sort of reconciliation they're trying to do but like 
I don't know. It just doesn't seem like enough's been done. The, the hate studies program at Gonzaga spends a lot more time talking about Nazis, you know, and the Jewish Holocaust than it does talking about the historic and ongoing genocide of, of Native people. Right. I heard recently that Gonzaga was established as and has an obligation, unfulfilled obligation to the Coeur d'Alene tribe in uh, providing uh, free and ongoing education to their tribal members. I mean, that was what Father Cataldo, I might be, mm-hmm. I might have to go back and do this history, but I, I just looked this up because like they were in a arms race, like a literal like religious arms race with the Methodists to establish an Indian school in Spokane. And so like Father Cataldo wrote to the Pope to be like, you got to give us money or so we can get to them before the Methodists do. Right. And save them. <laughs> yeah. And so, and this is where the racism is just so acute. And it's like, you can, it doesn't, you don't have to think very hard to see the parallels to today. Like Father Cataldo's like, hey, I got this money from the Pope uh, to do, to open up a, a school for Indian kids in, on the North Bank of the River. And Spokane City Council was like, cool, start a college, but not for Indian kids. Make it for white kids. And he's like, cool, that's cool too. All right. <laughs> and so they start, and so you're right, the unfulfilled part. And I don't know if it was specifically the Coeur d'Alene tribe. It might be. It was kind of like he just really wanted to establish sort of cultural hegemony over the area for, for Catholic, people of the Catholic faith. And he was going to do that however he could. Because there was a, a native school, I believe, up closer to Kettle Falls that he founded. And he this was kind of like... His magnum opus was going to be what became Gonzaga. And so I had heard the story that it used to be a school for Indian kids, but it actually was only ever kind of intended as that, but never actually was that because there was already so much racism that the city council of Spokane at that time was like, hell yeah, give us that Pope money, bring us that university, but don't fill it with Indian kids, right? So that actually touches on the invisibility a little bit where Mm -hmm. it's like you you can use a population to sort of suit your needs to get funding from this place on the other side of the world, your your bank, essentially. But then they're also easy, just as easily discardable to actually make that school a reality when I don't even actually know what would have been better, right? Like a, right. a school for kids that would oh have just gosh. perpetuated genocide, right. the cultural genocide of, you know, native culture, or just sort of using them to like get, you know, money from the Pope and then build it for, for white kids. Right. It would have been another, uh, in the listing of boarding schools. It would have just been, yeah, another mm-hmm. one, right? This is like not what I intended to talk about, but I'm fascinated about it because I kind of have this weird thing where I pay attention to uh, Canadian politics and and Mm -hmm. national cultural stuff. And it seems like they've done probably not an adequate job, but a much better job than we have of sort of dealing with the truth and reconciliation around the, the Indian, the boarding schools in Canada. I don't feel like we, I hear about it in America at all. Uh, No, I don't follow that, but I did attend a session about truth and reconciliation. One of the uh, legislators came down and and gave a talk, actually, I think at GU. Yeah. And uh, it just, yeah, I I would agree from what it sounds like they are so much further ahead, but still stumbling over how to do it right. Right. But we can't even tell the truth here in the U.S., so they're they're (laughs) ahead a little bit there further. So one of the other things that you talked about, it's a common trope, across our criminal legal system, the idea of criminalizing victims. You wrote in a, t- a 2019 letter, um, quote, when and if the, the media reports on mis- missing or murdered Native women, they often discuss prior criminal history and or drug use, perpetuating stereotypes and victim blaming. Unfortunately, this is how my sister was portrayed. She left behind six children, one of whom my husband and I were blessed to raise. 
can you talk about how both at a family level, but then at a societal level, it's criminalizing victims? It sort of helps individual perpetrators escape justice, but then it also sort of absolves the system itself from seeking justice for those people. I think uh, that is not unlike pretty much all people of color that yeah. are are being killed, that they want to focus on the victim and who the victim was in relationship to the dominant culture. I think that's that's definitely the, the biggest issue. And then you add on the stereotypes uh, specifically of Native Americans, you know, being drunk and being drug abusers right. and uh, you don't you know, raise your own children, and but not also acknowledging the other side of that. Um, I think media, I was just thinking today, I did a, a very brief interview uh, with Krem this morning, and I start thinking about, you know, the the media needs to actually start yeah. doing their own, doing homework about who Native people are. There are, you know, style guides out there that can help inform media on who modern day native people are right. and some of the main issues that we deal with not only as as tribes but as individuals and i think that would help them ask better questions and focus more on who native people are uh, in relation to their communities their families the culture this was a little bit before my time i was like literally i don't even think i was born yet but that commercial of like the native man on the side of the road where like the trash gets thrown and like a single tear oh my gosh so there's like not just the the, the narrative of the savage but then there's the narrative of the noble savage the noble. And, so, and you know and, and so that's where it's like even harmful stereotypes can even come from a place of like oh you know they're trying they're trying to use in an ignorant, but like trying to at least be like, oh, don't ruin our environment. You know, like what would this, right. you know, the stately chief say about, you know, you throwing garbage on the side of the road. That's something that I have as part of my cultural sort of memory, mm -hmm. even though that was from the mid, like probably seven or eight years before I was born. Oh, you know? yeah. Like, uh, if they're going to portray Native Americans in media or, you know, they don't actually use Native Americans either. I think oh, that yeah. guy was like yeah, Italian right. yeah, or no, something. Yeah, no, he was Italian. Yep, 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 yep. So then there's like those perceptions, right? So even the negative perceptions are damaging or even mm -hmm. the positive perceptions are damaging. Exactly. And it sort of obfuscates and allows people to just sort of look through, you know, I think about the people, you know, we're, we work two or three blocks from the house of charity, you know, it's like when I have to walk toward like the community building from, from our office, I'm shocked by the disproportionate number of people of color I see on those streets, you know, right. that are waiting for services and, and a lot of them are native. And so it's like it also allows them to sort of look past that problem. And they're simultaneously demonizing homeless people and also treating them as a monolith, you mm -hmm. know, and, and recognizing how uncomfortable might it be for those uh, indigenous people to be right. getting help from a Catholic institution. But what other choice do they have, you know? Right. So like you were saying, to tie this into these broader cultural narratives that affect all people of color and don't affect white people. Like just this week, we had George, or in the last couple of weeks, I guess, we've had George Floyd being slandered by mm -hmm. the defense, talking about his drug use and the, the fact that he might have died because of a heart right. condition exacerbated by amphetamine use. And then a couple of weeks before that, we had a, chief, a police chief in Atlanta tell the press that a white mass shooter who had specifically targeted Asian women uh, had just had a really bad day, right? right. So like... 
that's what we're we're all up against, right? Though any any one of us that wants to sort of change this narrative is that's it's a culture deep thing. And I guess you know on on the most like human to human level, it is easier to sort of empathize with somebody who looks like you, right? Like, right. and and probably who's shared your experiences in life, right? Like, it, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It might be easier for you to sort of like you can just sort of enter into an ease with fellow members of the Yakima, you know, tribe that have grown up in the same area. I can settle back in to like the cow folk I grew up with in uh, Chatteroy, Washington. You know, like that's because that's like where I grew up. But that doesn't absolve us from the work of seeing the the shared humanity. If you find yourself like as a white person wanting to sort of like absolve a white mass shooter and simultaneously say that the victim of a of a violent domestic violence, you know, related murder, it was no angel, then you've got some serious work to do right. on yourself. Well, we need to be better family to each other, actually, within our communities of color. I will always support. I listen to a lot of podcasts about different issues of, of, of the black community and specifically individuals who, like you said, get, get slandered or the the narrative is just so directed by white dominant culture. Yeah. And there are, there, you know, there are natives that would say, well, what about us? What about our struggle? What about, you know, the natives being the first of uh, genocide here in right. uh, the U.S.? But I have issues with that because I, I'm of the camp that, you know, unless until Black Lives Matter, no other lives are going to matter. And that's that also includes Native Americans. Right. It strikes me that, and I don't know how you feel about this, like um, it seems like the younger generation is taking that to heart and maybe even just sort of understands it intuitively in a way that older folks don't. And I don't even mean particularly old folks, but like I think about, so the Earth Day thing, Earth Day protest at Sunrise Movement ran, uh, just happened over the weekend. I Mm -hmm. went to it. Jeff Ferguson was there and some other folks. Um, but it struck me that like the way that that climate rally ran was just so manifestly different than like climate stuff was talked about when I was, you know, even with like, you know, Al Gore and convenient truth. It seems like we're younger activists are starting to take a more holistic approach to all of these things. Like they started it off with the land acknowledgement and Jeff and one other person whose name I'm blanking on spoke for almost 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and talked about all this stuff. And then Jeff was said, you know, we're, you know, native folks are 2% of the population. So it's going to take all of us working together to achieve that. So it's kind of the similar thing to what you were saying. Nobody's free until black women are free. Basically. Yeah. And that's, that strikes me as a, is a really important cultural shift because all of these movements together aren't enough. If everybody stays in our silos and I include white people in this, Mm -hmm. not just white allies, but like poor white people too. Right. right? You know, like poverty is an oppression that is visited probably on more people than any, you know, individual oppression is. And that includes a lot of white people, but we've been sort of like brainwashed. I've been, you know, taught to see more in common with Elon Musk than like, you know, the black kid that I grew up with in Chatteroy, right? Well, you know, white, white supremacy, pit poverty, poor white people against people of color. Absolutely. So that's a cultural shift that is is happening and it's really, really powerful. And it sounds like y'all are sort of taking up that same mantle. And that was the thing that was so kind of fascinating about this. And I'd love your input on it. And if it's like sort of something you're taking to heart with the week you guys have planned coming up, and I want to get to that specifically in a moment, but it was like these young activists were able to both hold both 
sort of simultaneously. Like it was all about climate, but they constantly said, we need climate justice so that we can, you know, they mentioned all BIPOC folks. They mentioned specifically the communities in the Pacific Islands that are like going to be underwater in a few years. But then they mentioned like unions and stuff too. I was like, I can't imagine the environmental movement of even like the late 90s, early 2000s sort of pulling everyone in and saying, this is a fight we all need to have in order to sort of break the dominant culture. And that was, that really made me, I got sort of goosebumps sitting there thinking about like what could happen. And so it sounds like you guys are working on around a a similar thing of trying to bring everyone together, sort of demonstrating how these are shared fights. Right. One of the slides that I shared with you was about reciprocity, uh, wanting to work with all other groups that have the same interest in moving whether it's our our various narratives and the work around the, the different priorities that we've established within our own communities. Uh, I think it's not only just Native people that understand that everything is connected, but those that are very passionate about any given set of work see the connection, and it's easier to make um, because we have so many different... We have so many problems that are similar within our communities of color. You and other organizers are raising awareness with a week of events leading up to May 5th, which is the National Day of Remembrance for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. What are you all planning? Yes, we initially wanted to do a whole week of remembrance and celebration of life. But because we were pressed with on time, yeah. we decided that it was best to focus on one event. Okay. Um, so we're, we actually are working with the Gonzaga Law School. They have a, um, a group of students that have been producing a series on MMIW. And um, really from, which I appreciate from the perspective of of law and policy, which makes sense. Um, So we tied into all of their activities that they, that they were, that they're hosting. And the last one is on the 29th is the last of their webinar series. And I I believe it's uh, having to do with MMIW reporting and data and the Native American Alliance for Policy and Action to Napa. We have a Facebook group that we've posted all of the different events that they have held um, because people who want to go back and listen to them, they're recorded recorded. and made available to everybody to listen to. In addition to that, we are posting the link to a virtual, I think it's a 5K MMIW run that's happening nationally. And on May 5th, the Tanapa group and the River Warriors group, which is uh, Twyla Abrahamson Swan and Donnell Barlow, um, oh, right. we're working with the city and um, GU to have a a march starting on the GU campus and walking along the Centennial Trail to end at the uh, Riverfront Park uh, Pavilion. Cool. That starts at six o'clock, and the exact location will be shared again on on our Facebook group. But we're also we also have a mailing list for Tanapa that I'm going to email out all of the different details cool. for speakers and resources that we're going to make available that the day of to educate people not only on MMIW but resources here locally and across the state. That's awesome. I always ask this question and this this you know we've just had an incredibly dark and bleak conversation uh, with literally centuries of trauma attached but 
I'm assuming you wouldn't be fighting this if you didn't think change was possible. And so what, what gives you hope in this moment? I consider myself to be an optimistic person. And uh, when growing up on, on a reservation, it's not often easy to find hope very easily. Yeah. Um, but what gives me hope is that because, unfortunately, there's so many families that have been affected by uh, their loved ones going missing and or murdered, I'm, I'm feeling hopeful that there is more awareness around the issue and that there are resources being allocated to addressing it, uh, not, o- you know, not only nationwide, but now statewide with the Washington State Patrol hiring two MMIW liaisons, oh, uh, one for great. the west side and one for the east side. And I believe the east side one um, was hired and brought on in November 2020. Wow, that's great. We just saw that there was all that data that the state patrol disproportionately tickets around reservations yes. in the state. So yes. it, it takes an incredible amount of faith and trust and goodwill, let me just say, to like to even work with most of these groups. Like every everybody you mentioned who's like, I guess, trying to do right now has caused significant harm in the past. Exactly. And so like I don't know. I just want to. Well, I just want to shout you out for I that. Guess I guess I would. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would clarify and say, it's not necessarily within those agencies that I am hopeful for. I'm sure. hopeful that the advocates uh, that we will be holding them accountable. Yeah. When I, I was, I was sort of less. Yeah, that and more. Just like, damn, dude, you've chosen to sort of allow people to get right in a way that, you know, really requires a lot of grace on your part and extending a lot of grace to people who have been historically massively, massively cause a lot of pain and drama in those communities. So um, I think it's part of healing. Yeah, you have to. Well, I think that's a lesson for all of us. Jenny Slagle, thank you so much for coming on range. Thank you. What a powerful sentiment there at the end. I think, uh, I think I know a lot of people, and I may or may not be one of them, who could learn a lot from the final sentiment shared there. Let's just run it back real quick. Really requires a lot of grace on your part and extending a lot of grace to people who have been historically massively, massively caused a lot of pain and drama in those communities. So um, I think it's part of healing. Yeah. You have to. I am not going to try to top that. If you like what we're up to here at Range, you can... Help us out by subscribing at www.rangemedia.co, C-O, slash subscribe. And in the show notes, I'll have information on how to directly help folks doing MMIWG2S plus work in our area and also some national links to further educate yourself as well. All right, y'all. This has been a really powerful episode. Thanks again so much to Jenny Slagle for taking the time and and sharing herself so fully, such a deeply personal story and for the work that she's doing to make sure that this doesn't continue happening to more families. All right, everyone have a good week. Bye.